Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture today is from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. Chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Danny. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we open these, the book of John this morning and hear these words of Christ, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. As we reflect on what it means that we have been loved by your Son and called his friends, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to have a passion to share that love with others. Equip us for obedience to this command this morning, Lord. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, a guy from California made headlines after winning $145,000 on the game show Wheel of Fortune. What made it newsworthy, though, is not that he had won that amount of money, but that afterward, he gave it all away to two local charities. People were shocked by the generosity of this man, and the news went viral for a couple of days. It got me thinking about a hypothetical situation. Let's say that someone else won $145,000, and they were told that they could choose any charitable cause that they wanted, and that that charitable cause would would also receive $145,000, so that the winner would be able to give away that that, uh, that amount and also keep it for himself. In that scenario, it would not be newsworthy at all if he announces that he's going to give $145,000 to the local food bank. What would make the headlines is if he knew that he could give away the winnings while also keeping the full amount for himself, yet for him to refuse and to just go home with his $145,000. People would be shocked by such selfishness, and news of that decision would go viral. 
Reading the words of Jesus in this passage from John 15, though, we realize that this hypothetical scenario isn't really all that hypothetical at all. Christ has poured out the riches of his mercy and kindness on us, calling us his friends. And now we've been called to share that mercy, that kindness. We've been called to share that love with others, all while we get to keep it forever. And as he speaks to his disciples here, Jesus charges them to love as he has loved, to give away what they've been given without having to lose it themselves. It is the charge for all Christians, and yet often we struggle to do so. So this morning, as we look at the command of Christ to love as he has loved and the way that he explains his love, we do so with the humility that we need this word and the movement of the Holy Spirit that will make obedience to it to the command of Christ possible. We resume our study of the book of John this morning in the middle of Jesus' teaching to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. Jesus has been preparing these 11 men who will soon have the responsibility for leading in Jesus' absence. And now, on the night before they are thrown into it, he stops to give this final lesson. He's built up to this moment and to the instruction that he is about to leave them with. Some scholars consider this passage that we're looking at this morning to be sort of the center of the the farewell discourse or Jesus' teaching to the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. He leaves them with this instruction that he has illustrated powerfully in chapter 13 when he washed their feet. He proved its importance and revealed how it will be possible that they will obey it by promising to send the Holy Spirit to them in chapter 14. And now in chapter 15, he has said that those who are connected to him who abide in him by faith, will be people who are characterized. They will be people who are characterized by their obedience to his teaching and instruction. He said in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, the point that this text is inviting us to ask, the question that this text is compelling us to ask is what does Jesus command? If this is the mark of our abiding in Christ, our obedience to his command, we are compelled to ask, what does he command? Will it be the Great Commission, a command to go and make disciples and to share the love of Christ with others by calling them to faith? Will it be a command to go and sin no more, to live in holiness and righteousness? Certainly, these are things that Jesus commanded, but on this critical night, One that Jesus knows these men will vividly remember for the rest of their lives, he gives them this word. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus knows the strain that the coming days will put on their fellowship. So this command is one that will preserve the church in its earliest days, but it is also a command for the generations that follow. This is an instruction for all Christians, in all generations. It is an echo of what Jesus described as the greatest commandment recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When he was challenged by the Jewish leaders who sought to catch him in a trap by asking him to identify among what, which from among the hundreds of God's laws that he had given to his people was the most important. And Jesus replies to them that the law, all of the law, depends on the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second most important commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
His answer is rooted in the well-known words of Deuteronomy 6.5, which Pastor Bruce alluded to just a little bit earlier in the service. It was an absolutely central passage for Jesus or for the Jewish people in the first century, which reminded them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That verse was recited often, daily even. It was perhaps the most well-known passage of the Old Testament in the first century. So Jesus is not saying anything surprising by pointing to this as the greatest commandment. But he does explain something new and revolutionary in that the second greatest commandment is bound to it. There is an unbreakable relationship between love for God and love for people. And we see that reflected here in John 15. Jesus has told the disciples that they will abide in the love of God, they will cling to him, they will honor him, they will love God by keeping his command to love others. They will glorify God when they love what he loves. But none of this is groundbreaking. It's what God's people ought to have known all along. Until Jesus adds the phrase, as I have loved you. And that phrase, three little words in Greek, changes everything. It's a command for the disciples and for all of Christ's followers to go and give away what they have received from him to love as they have been loved by him. So, the central question raised by this passage, and the one that drives the disciples beginning in verse 11 and continuing on through the rest of their lives and the rest of church history over the next 20 centuries, and the question standing before us today is this, how has Christ loved? In order to follow in his footsteps and love as he has loved, the disciples need to know the love of Christ for themselves. And the same is true for each of us. A hurdle, I think, that we need to overcome in answering this question is that in our day, our understanding of love has been shaped more by pop culture than by, by Scripture. It's been shaped more by the books that we read and the movies that we watch than it has by Christ. We think of love mainly as an emotion, something that we feel towards someone that we are subject to. It's something that we fall into, but that clearly is not how Jesus understands it. If it were strictly a feeling that we were subject to, then how could he command it? Further than that, how could he have instructed his followers in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies? That command makes no sense if love is something that we fall into, if we are subject to it. Clearly, for Jesus, love is not first a feeling that we are subject to, but an act that we carry out. And in order to carry it out, to love as he is loved, we need to know how he has loved us. So Jesus spends the remainder of this passage explaining the nature of his love. That first and foremost, it is sacrificial, that it raises people up and that it brings them close, and that it is poured out for the glory of God. So first, Jesus explains that his love is sacrificial tells them in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We should be careful not to misunderstand Jesus's words here because we might be tempted to think, you might be tempted to think as I was, wouldn't it be an even greater love, Jesus, a more magnificent love, a more significant love if it is shown to enemies as you commanded your followers to do in the Sermon on the Mount? That's what I thought when I read John 15. I thought, 
Well, a greater love would be one that's not reciprocated, one that is poured out for enemies. But Jesus' point here is not that the object of his love shows its magnitude, but what it is willing to lose. It is a foreshadowing of what is to come and a word of hope that the disciples can cling to when they see Jesus hung on a cross less than 24 hours from now. Jesus wants them to remember that no one can take his life from him, but he wills to lay it down. Only by looking back at this comment from Jesus here in John 15 will they understand that he truly meant it, that he truly meant that this is the greatest love the world will ever know, that someone lays down his life for others. And they will be encouraged to remember as they look back and remember these words from John 15 that this was his will, that he chose this for them, for all his people, out of love for them. Because his love, it is sacrificial. It is willing to pay the highest cost. We understand the logic of sacrificial love because we do it every day, though most often in very small ways. As many of you know, Westgate has been hosting regular uh, Red, Red Cross blood drives downstairs in the fellowship hall. And this last week, I signed up to donate. And as I lay there on the table, ready for the nurse to jab me with the needle, I was highly aware of the sacrifice that I was making. Because nobody likes the feeling of being stabbed. We have a biological drive, a pursuit of self-preservation that reminds us that getting a sharp object jammed into a vital artery is generally a bad thing. But we do it because we know that the discomfort we feel, the anxiety we feel, is nothing compared to the blessing that it will be to someone who needs it. So we understand the logic behind sacrificial love, and we even feel good about it when we pour it out. We pat ourselves on the back for our willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. But Jesus' love and the love that we are called to give if we belong to him goes far beyond enduring a poke from a needle. It is something that the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians as a love that surpasses all knowledge. It is bigger and higher and deeper than anything else we've ever known. The love of Christ drove him to lay down his life. There is no deeper love than that. And Christ, who deserved honor and praise, who among all people who have ever lived was without sin, exchanged his life for rebels and sinners. So Paul in Romans 5 writes about this knowledge-surpassing love when he says that one will scarcely die to die for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. He says, sure, that happens from time to time, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Maybe that happens sometimes, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John spent the rest of his life thinking about this. I think that the words that Jesus spoke to the 11 disciples on the night before his crucifixion rang in his ears every single day until he died. And they shaped the man that he was afterward. I say that not just on a hunch or a suspicion about John and the things that I think were important to him, but because he would later write a book of the Bible, 1 John. 
that he's mainly concerned with how beholding the love of Christ transforms us. It makes us new. It makes us into the people who are able to love like Christ. And he says in 1 John chapter 4, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In love, Christ came to atone for the sin of his people by giving his perfect life. He gave what was beautiful to save what was ugly. He gave what was valuable to save what was corrupted, what was damaged and rotten. He gave what was infinitely valuable to redeem our lives and to save us from the just wrath of a holy judge, which he endured in our place. It is no trivial thing to love as we have been loved, sacrificially by the Son of God. If we understand the love of Christ, we should tremble when we hear this command because we know that obedience to it will be costly. If we are called to love sacrificially, to love as Christ has loved, we ought to tremble. But we should take courage, knowing that no threat we can face, that we will face, can diminish the saving power of Christ's sacrificial love for us. The eleven disciples would give their lives for it. They loved as he did an echo of the love that they had received, relentlessly, sacrificially, and in the face of death itself. That is our call, and the call of all Christians. And this is not radical Christianity, though it may sound extreme. It's just what it means to be loved by Christ, and then to go and do likewise. Secondly, Christ explains that the effect of this sacrificial love is that it raises people up, Three times in this short passage, Jesus calls the disciples his friends and then goes on to explain that this is a recent promotion. No longer do I call you servants, he says in verse 15. Servants is how the ESV that I'm reading from this morning translates this word, but some of your Bibles probably use the word slaves. And the point that Jesus is making here is that in love, he raises people up. He calls them friends rather than servants. Through all of the Old Testament, only Abraham and Moses are called friends of God. So these disciples, the followers of Christ, are in good company. And not only that, but this is a change to the nature of the relationship that the disciples had with Jesus. They call him rabbi, which means teacher, and understand that they are his students, which is what the word disciple means. They are not equals with him. In the ancient Near East, this teacher-student structure was common and it was rigid. Students didn't question their teacher and they certainly were not called his friends. But Jesus is a different kind of teacher, driven by a greater love than the world has ever seen. He is like the king who has left his palace and gone out into the streets where his subjects live and invited them to come and be his honored guests at a grand banquet. But then, after the banquet ends, the king doesn't send them home to their shacks. Instead, he tells them that they can stay in the palace forever, sit at the king's table for every single meal. And then, every day for the rest of their lives, they live in the favor of the king who calls them friends rather than servants. But this is not a friendship like any other that we have ever known in life. 
Because Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That isn't how most friendships work. If I said to you, yeah, of course we're friends, as long as you do everything that I tell you to do, you would say that that's a pretty strange friendship. Two things are necessary for us to understand Jesus' words here. First and foremost, he is still the king. He calls the disciples friends, but they are no more his equal than Abraham or Moses was with God when he called them his friends in the Old Testament. God still commanded their obedience, but he welcomed them into close fellowship with him. He welcomed them to the king's table. Secondly, obedience to Christ is not a condition that friendship with him hangs on. Let me explain. The if in this sentence is not here to say, if you obey, then because you have obeyed, you are my friends. Instead, Jesus is making the point that obedience to his command is what proves that someone is his friend. It is the effect that confirms his love and his calling. He'll explain in verse 16 by saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Before any of the disciples, or any Christian for that matter, ever had the idea to follow him or to obey him, Christ had called them to obedience and equipped them to carry it out. This is true in your life and mine, and it is a humbling thing to consider. Though all Christians can look back through the years of their lives, and reflect on the ways in which, the moments in time in our lives in which we chose to actively pursue God, to put our faith and our trust in Him, and to live according to His Word, Jesus reminds us here that His grace preceded and enabled us to ever arrive at the point that we would look to Him in hope or desire to live according to His Word. If you are a Christian, remember today that you are like these disciples in John 15. You were going about your life, living for yourself, until the day that Jesus spoke to you, getting a hold of you before you ever had the inkling of a thought to reach out to him. He chose you. And more than that, he appointed you to bear abiding fruit, which Jesus spoke about in the passage that we looked at last, well, two weeks ago. Jesus knows that the disciples will succeed. He knows that they will succeed, that they will bear the fruit that they have been appointed to produce in their lives and in the world. He knows what he has in store for each of them, just as he knows what he has in store for each of us. And as we see the fruit of a relationship with him begin to grow in our hearts and lives, Jesus wants us to remember and to be encouraged by the fact that he brings it about because he has called us friends that it confirms his calling in our life because his love raises people up. He has welcomed us to his table, into a transforming relationship with him. The disciples will need to remember this, and we do too, because when things get rough and suffering comes into our lives, which it surely will, we will be tempted, as they were, to think that God has turned his back on us, that he has turned away from us. When we pray for relief and for protection from things that we fear and it doesn't come, we will wonder, we will wonder whether Jesus really considers us friends at all. But he reminds the disciples, he reminds the disciples and us 
that his faithfulness will be proved in the transformation of lives. He will die to redeem them. He will, spend the, he will send the Holy Spirit to restore them. And they will be able to see his faithfulness in their own hearts as they become vessels of that same love as it is poured into the lives of others. As they grow in hatred for sin and in strength to stand against temptation, and as they become people who love in the face of threats to their safety and who proclaim the gospel in spite of the costs that will come with doing it, they will remember that Christ has not forgotten them, but that he is at work in and through them. Jesus' love raises people up. It makes us into the men and women that he has called us to be, those whose lives bear the fruit of righteousness that we could not produce apart from his willingness to call us his friends. That is what we ought to aim for in our love for one another, to desire, as Christ does, to see people raised up, to become the men and women of righteousness and courage that they were called to be, and to love when it is costly to do so. Third, Jesus' love brings people close. Though this is related to the observation that Jesus' love raises people up, he says something else here that I think is remarkable in its own way. In verse 15, he notes, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. This is an amazing mark of Christ's love. I'll illustrate it this way. When I was growing up, my house was always busy. I had two brothers, and between the three of us, we had friends coming and going constantly. My parents were gracious enough to put up with a constant stream of kids running through our house, and they were always willing to feed extra kids at dinner time. I, I, the number of nights that there were more than the five of us at the dinner table vastly outnumbered the nights when we did not have any guests. They were always willing to set out another plate and to put another chair at the table, showing hospitality to whoever we brought over for dinner. But even though that hospitality was significant, it would not be the same for someone who walked in uninvited and expected a place at the table. Their door was always open, but only to those who came with me or one of my brothers. Jesus suggests something similar here. Apart from him, the doors remain closed and locked. But with him, friends are welcomed into his father's house and into their fellowship. But not only that, he says that he has made known all that the father has said to him. There is nothing held back. There is no restraint on Jesus' love. It unlocks every door and throws them all wide open. It does not keep secrets or keep people at arm's length. It draws them close so that they will hear the words of God. Is that the way that we understand what it means to love one another? For Jesus, it was a willingness to share his life for the purpose of bringing people close to God. That may take many forms or many shapes for us. We invite people into our homes. We share our thoughts and our troubles, and we listen to theirs. We don't hold people at arm's length, but bring them close. And we do it with the hope that people will hear God's words on our lips, that they will feel the love of God and the warmth of his affection in our kindness, and that they will understand something of the faithfulness of God in our friendship. To love as Christ loved us is to bring people close 
so that they will be drawn close to God. It is not a love that seeks any personal profit or personal gain because in Christ we know that we have nothing else to gain. But it is driven by the hope that others will know the joy of knowing and being loved by God, which they ought to glimpse in friendship with his people. Lastly, his love is for the glory of God. Jesus has just told the disciples in verse 8, which we looked at before Easter, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is why he chose them. It is why he has appointed them to the work that is set before them, so that they will bear the fruit of righteousness and bring glory to God. And hidden in these lines is a play on words that will hint at the nature of that work. He has told them that the world knows no greater love than that of one willing to lay down his life. And that word translated lay down, which we understand to mean in death, is the very same word that he uses three verses later when he says that he has appointed them. It's an interesting word in Greek because it can be used differently and with different meanings, the same way that we would use the word, uh, the same word in two different circumstances, like if I said I'm going to take the last piece of pizza and I'm going to take a photo. The same word can have two different meanings. So lay down and appoint are accurate translations of the very same word in Greek. But the fact that Jesus uses the same word so differently and so close together suggests that there is a purposeful relationship between these two verses. He is revealing that what lies ahead for the disciples will be difficult. They will love as he loved by laying down their own lives for the sake of the gospel. They've been appointed to this work. He has hinted at this before. When two of the disciples approached Jesus and asked to sit in places of honor with him in his kingdom, Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And the disciples say, yes, of course, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. And Jesus tells them that they are right. They will drink the same cup that he drinks. It's a metaphor that he's using for the suffering that he is about to endure. The cup that he will drink will be one of torture and humiliation and death. And the path ahead of each of the 11 disciples will be similar. Most of them will be executed for their faith. Like Jesus, they will go and make disciples and they will teach them all that has been made known to them by Christ. They will pass all of the word of God that they have heard along to those whom they are showing love to. And like him, they will give their lives For those Christ has chosen so that the glory of the Lord will be revealed in all his people who will rejoice in it. To love as Christ has loved is not an easy calling. It will demand everything from these disciples. And though it will not likely demand our blood in the same way that it did for them, it does demand the death of any tendency to love ourselves first. This is what Jesus displays at every turn, what the disciples would go on to emulate in their lives. That this love for God's people is greater than his own desire to keep himself safe and prosperous. Though he would have been justified in remaining on his throne forever, he stepped off of it and into the world that he made, out of heavenly glory and into earthly poverty and obscurity for the sake of love. Though he would have been justified in silencing his accusers and protecting himself from his attackers, he was silent before them. He chose purposefully 
to set aside his own self-interest out of love, willing to lay down his life rather than protect it in order to carry out the will of his Father. Later this very same night, Jesus will pray, asking if there is any other way to save God's people. His desire is for our salvation. But as the cross looms nearer, he feels its weight and the burden of God's wrath poured out against sin. And so he prays, if there is any other way, Then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. He chose to walk the path of death that will reveal both the love and the justice of God. And that is the calling of all of his people. To choose love that reveals God's supremacy rather than a path that would preserve our safety. Because we know that in Christ, what we receive is infinitely more valuable than a safe life without him. It is a life satisfied with the glory of God rather than a life spent vainly searching for something that could match it. When we choose to love as Christ loved, sacrificially and selflessly, we proclaim to the world and to God himself that he is worth it. We proclaim that he is our satisfaction and our joy, that his glory is sufficient, and that even if we lose everything else, that it will be enough. To love as Christ has loved is a dangerous thing. It will cost us everything to do it. But the more of his love we give away, the more we will realize that the treasure that we have in him can never be lost. Jesus wants his disciples to remember that because the road ahead will be marked with their suffering for the sake of love. And he wants us to remember it also. There is no greater love than his. And knowing that, we are equipped to meet the demands that will come with loving, even as he has loved us. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this morning, as we consider these words from John 15, Help us to realize the depth of Christ's love and its sacrificial nature. Cause us to rejoice in the knowledge that we have been deeply loved and brought into your presence at great cost. And help us to face with honesty the calling that you give to all of your people to love as we have been loved. May we see both that doing so will be costly but that in Christ we have a treasure more satisfying than anything we might lose if we share it with others. Lord, we pray this morning in hope and expectation in the name of your Son.